0: Bet you wish you were here. Hello, is it Tag you're looking for? I can see it in your eyes. It yeah, is comes as a great surprise. I don't know, they may or may not be the lyrics, but anyway, guys, just give you a snapshot of me. I don't know if you want it, but here you're gonna get it. I love hockey walkie bockeys. I mentioned them there in Ep 1, and they're back. Like, I'm sitting here now, right, in my little hovel in Cork, recording this voiceover with a hot water bottle wrapped around my belly, okay, and a dressing gown around it. Now, just to give you a little snapshot of me, like, wow, back in the day, I was, um, I was uh, pretty, pretty wild out there, guys. I would have been kind of, I suppose you might have described me as Cork South Central's answer to Jim Arson up trees, missing for days, kind of crazy carry-on altogether. Now, I find myself drawn to scones, hockey walkie, bockies cups of cocoa and putting little pillows between my knees at night. Anyone else do that? I just find that my two knees clung up next to each other at night can get sore after a while. So, I'm a problem solver, stick a pillow in there and you wake up in the morning feeling so cool and refreshed, particularly your two inner knees. And you know what? I don't mind it. I'm happy with it. Like, I'm happy to say that. I'm not, I'm not moaning. I'm happy to be this guy you now. Like, I'm doing a tour of County Cork there at the moment. And the very last thing I want to do now is kind of pit venues against each other. But, like, I have to say to Barras and Clannacilty, like, oh, my God. Like, they're all good. They're all great, actually. They're all great. But to Barras, oh, my God. The heat is on. There's a little spread out. You go into your own little room. It's just okay for you, Tig? They bring you to the stage when it's time to go on. You're treated like a little prince. And you're so warm and your belly's so full and I just think it's great. So that's just a little shout out to the Barrows. Anyway, Brexit podcast, come on, let's get back to it. We move to a section of my podcast now that I've entitled Europe, right? We've had a couple of English guests, we've had a Scottish guest, we've had a Welsh guest, and we've had a Southern Irish guest... I'm bouncing to Europe now, and then I'll flip up to the north. I've entitled the Europe section. It's a kind of a sub-section to interviews. Now, a lot of people were kind of saying to me, oh, I bet you won't get anyone significant in Europe to talk to you, Ty, you know. Do you know these kind of people, like the doubters, there was a few kind of doubting Thomases around the community there, like, you know, when I'd be doing my shopping in Aldi, they'd turn around and say, oh, I hear you're doing a podcast, yeah. Europe, (laughs) bet you won't get anyone in Europe to talk to you anyway. (laughs) Well, all I'll say there, guys, is I hope there was a lot of humble pie in those baskets and trolleys because you're going to be eating the stuff for the month when you hear who my guests are. In the next episode, I have, um, hearties, you're a better good enough, you. Yeah? A guy whose tweets are making or breaking international currencies? It's Tony, I eat Brexit for breakfast, Connolly. And in today's episode, I have another dairy legend. I am absolutely beside myself to be speaking to Martina Anderson. She was an MLA for foil between two thousand and seven, two thousand and twelve, and again from twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty one. I am specifically talking to her today, though, about her role as MEP for the North between twenty twelve and twenty twenty. She explains what it was like to be right there inside the machine, kind of sitting Europe down. And kind of demanding that they focus on Ireland. Forget about Scotland for the moment. All eyes on Ireland until we're assured that the Good Friday Agreement and the relative peace in the North is preserved. I think it's worth noting for our listeners both in Ireland and outside Ireland that so many people that I talked to and emailed in preparation for this podcast highlighted... Martina Anderson's role in making sure that the North of Ireland and Ireland generally was front and centre in all these negotiations again not to put too fine a point on it the mantra that we heard from Europe no hard border no hardening of the border in Ireland I think it's quite hard to argue that Martina Anderson didn't put that mantra in their feckin heads and mouths so guys you know what I mean like is that guess good enough for you you know somebody who was right there in the middle of the negotiations actually kind of telling Europe what's what and who's who you know, I mean, you can't say, I mean, that's pretty good bang for your buck. Martina is also a very, very proud Irish Republican and spent some of her young life in prison for membership of the IRA. Her descriptions of her time in prison are, are definitely going to be a tough listen. I would say that it would kind of warn people that there's plenty of lighter moments as well. There's a lot of levity, particularly about her being very honest enough to say that at the start in Europe, she's got her head up. She's storming around trying to find her office and she hasn't a clue where she's going. Very, very funny. She also sets out her vision for a New Ireland. She is an out and out firecracker. You're going to love her, ladies and gentlemen, Martina Anderson. Boom, 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 boom. This is the podcast. <laughs> yeah, really, yeah, like, yeah. Trying to get Martina to just behave herself.
1: Behave herself. <laughs> <laughs> there have been people trying to do that for years. I can imagine. Um, yeah, unmanageable revolutionary.
0: <laughs> Very succinctly, who is Martina Anderson, please?
1: Well, I probably would agree with you that I am a rebel, but I am a dairy girl from the side in Derry. I'm my mother's daughter. She was the rebel. She was the rebel in our house. And she had 10 children. My daddy died when I was 10, so my mother was left to rear all the children. And she had seven daughters, and each of us very opinionated daughters at that. Um, a wife uh, married in prison. My wedding was definitely not the wedding that I had in mind. When I dreamed about walking up the island in a white dress, that certainly didn't happen. I married Paul Cavanagh, my husband, and we're still together, very much in love. So I'm a friend and a comrade and a dedicated Irish Republican. And I'm someone who has stood up for Derry, love the people of Derry, love the people of Ireland. I've been all over the world traveling. I've had the privilege of meeting lots of people, but there's no place like home.
0: Wonderful. On the European perspective, because... It's very rare to get the chance to talk to somebody who was right there in the midst of it as it was all kicking off, as this whole Brexit thing was kicking off. How did you feel the Europeans perceived Britain as negotiators? Well,
1: I think initially they thought a former member state, someone who had been part of the club, so to speak, for 47 years, that they knew them and they thought they knew them well. Well, no one knows the British better than us. And I realised that... Um, the high expectations that they would have of a former member state honoring agreements and negotiating in good faith would not be what would happen because we know the tactics deployed by the British establishment and their years. and just wonder if somebody hasn't done research on them because they're decades old. And basically what they do is they go into every negotiation, they discover what your bottom line is. Uh, they sign off in the agreement. And then they walk out the door to negotiate downwards, hollow it out. And that is exactly what happened in Europe. I warned them not to trust the British establishment, that they earned the name Perfidious Album for a good reason, a country that you does not uh, keep its word and you do not trust. And that Britannia would waive the rules as it had done with those of us in the North, the majority of us who voted to remain in the EU, and yet the democratically expressed wishes of the majority of us in the North were ignored by the British establishment. And I knew that the British establishment would ignore the negotiations as they would unfold, however they would unfold. So I tried to tell the EU, the EU had to learn that even though it was negotiating with a former member state that sat around the table and agreed particular policy issues about its own country and for other member states, that they were dealing with a very different beast when they were dealing with Britain as an opponent and as someone who would try to leave the EU as it left every other country in the world in a mess. It's tactics that the British government deploy. They hollow out every agreement that they make after they sign off on the agreement. And it's wonder that someone hasn't done a PhD on it because it's classic. That's something I might do. Yeah, I, you might. Yeah.
0: This comedy thing is clearly not working <laughs> out. Um, <laughs> so in your time negotiating, as lead Brexit negotiator for the left group, and of course, Sinn Féin. What moments did you realise that you'd made an impact?
1: Well, there was a team. Sinn Féin's a team in the European Parliament, and there's no I in team, but I was the head of the the Sinn Féin delegation. And the moment that I realised that we had made an impact, there wasn't any one moment, there were a few moments. Immediately after Britain had voted to leave the EU, even though we voted to remain, Scotland voted to remain, but we were ignored, there was a council meeting called, and the Taoiseach of the time, and uh, Kenny was uh, at that meeting. He was a latter-day braveheart when he was talking about Brexit, because it was all about Scotland and the situation in Scotland, and he was very concerned about Scotland. He was faint-hearted when he came to the north, not a mention, not a whimper. But he wasn't alone in focusing on mm. Scotland, lots of MEPs, hundreds of them actually, when they would talk to you about Brexit, the next thing they'd ask you would be about would there be a second referendum in Scotland. And nobody was focusing on Ireland and the peace process. So I realised I needed to do something to get attention. And if it has to be, it's up to me. It's one of the mottos in life that I live by. So I stood up in an empty chamber in Strasbourg one Monday night and I told Theresa May, Not in parliamentary language, I have to say, but I told Theresa May to stick her border where the sun doesn't shine. She wasn't putting it in Ireland. And the next day and days and weeks after it, Europe's head swung 180 degrees. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday... Matt Carthy and I, MEP, um, we couldn't cope with the volume of demand across Europe because all these countries wanted to know why this Irish MEP was standing on her feet telling that to a British Prime Minister, what was the problem. <laughs> so we got to explain partition, the Good Friday Agreement, the peace process, the implications that this was going to have for Ireland. And it was like a light bulb moment. Ping, Houston, we have a problem. And we left Strasbourg feeling that the attention had swung our way. And so that was, that, I think that was quite a significant moment, even though I know it probably irked on people. Me using such language, I have to say, my mother uh, was alive at the time and she had Alzheimer's. And I remember my sister saying to me, it's as well that woman is in that bed and cannot talk too well because she would be up doing more than wagging her finger <laughs> at you tonight <laughs> when I walked in the door. But I think there was a realisation too that it had served a purpose, and it did. So we, um, we had Martin McGuinness, who had helped us as um, implementing a diplomatic offensive in Europe because we realised what the British was going to do to Ireland as well, leave us in a mess as well as everywhere else. So Martin was quite instrumental in helping to uh, drive the campaign for us to remain in the EU and also he was the most significant figure I think in Sinn Féin at that time coming over to the European Parliament to engage uh, with a lot of the key players to reinforce the message that we were saying about the Good Friday Agreement and the peace process. So when Article 50 was triggered, the European Parliament was the first institution to express itself and put down its red lines article 50 as we know you know what when britain gave notification formally that it was leaving the eu so the european parliament as i say it was going to be the first of the institutions in europe to put down its marker and it would be the last so there was a brexit steering group established and the group of the left of which champagne's members of and the meps we um they were pointed me as the lead negotiator for what's called GUI NGL, one of my film, but it's the left in Europe. So I negotiated on Brexit with a complete, absolute focus and attention on Ireland, and the resolution that was going to the Strasbourg Parliament was on that last week of March 2017. I travelled over to Strasbourg with a very heavy heart. My heart was broke, as were hundreds and thousands of people who knew the late Martin McGuinness because we had just buried him the week before. And I found the negotiations tough, and I don't know whether that was because of my state of mind, but I found, and I was like a dog with a bone. So I had recommended to our group that we weren't signing the resolution because there was not protection being given to the Good Friday Agreement in all of its parts, or no hardening of the border in Ireland in the unique and special circumstances of Ireland needing to be taken into account. And so our the president of the group, Gabby Simmers, had uh, called a press conference, but at that stage, the chair of the Brexit steering group, Guy Hostad, he was really keen to try and get as many groups to sign off on it, and they were still negotiating with me, but Gabby was trying to explain that we would not be signing the resolution and why. And I succeeded in getting those amendments into the resolution. So they agreed that they would put the Good Friday Agreement in all of its parts. I think those are the most important words that um, at that time that I come up with myself and Brian Carty. Uh, Brian Carty is a, an Irish guy working for the group. He was their special advisor, their SPAD, so to speak, on on Brexit. And, you know, I was... You know, discussing this with Brian, I was going in all of its parts because I needed in all of its parts in there because all of its parts meant the unity provision of the Good Friday Agreement. And the Good Friday Agreement was not a moment in time as presented by the Irish government that had ended conflict. It was a a new beginning. It was a process of change and there were provisions in it. And that there would be no hardening of the border. I was very keen on the word hardening and, you know, I have to say in the translation of the language when you were dealing with some of the MEPs, I was going we already have a border. It is already too hard. We cannot have any hardening of the border. So Brian had he legged to the press conference to inform Gabby Simmers that um, I had succeeded in getting amendments in and was recommending that she sign it. And um, was, there was one minute left to the deadline and we signed off and 620 MEPs voted for the resolution with those elements in it. So that was quite a significant moment because we were then able to go across the parliament. We went across a range of member states, and I went right across the parliament, right up to the far right. I would not talk to the fascists or, or the far right, and there's no point in talking to UKIP uh, or any of those. And we developed my We Good Friday Agreement. <laughs> And the title actually was a brainchild of one of the elected activists, our non-elected activists over there, Dara Hughes. I wanted a small pocket-sized Good Friday Agreement, so he came up with my wee Good Friday Agreement. And we peppered the parliament with MEPs explaining to them what was actually in it. But the next week after the Strasbourg was the council, the European Council. So I left Strasbourg on the Thursday night of Friday by the time we got home. And then I left Derry on Sunday to head over to Brussels for a Brexit steering group on the Monday. 'Cause Kiefer Hofstadt, the chair of the Brexit Steering Group, was going in to represent the parliament in what was called and what are called Sherpa meetings, and then Sherpa meetings are the meetings that clear out the pathway for big major summits for heads of states to go in. So we had the draft European Council guidelines in front of us and I needed Guy to go into BAT for the Good Friday Agreement and all of its parts. I actually wanted him to go in with the three issues. Other MEPs were focused on the settlement, the Brexit settlement, financial settlement that the British government had the honour, its financial commitments. Others were looking at financial services being in London and others were looking at agencies being taken out of London. I was looking at nothing more than Ireland. And I knew he had too much on his plate and he wasn't going to do it justice if I insisted on all three. And he was saying to me, you know, I'm losing the argument here with you because... So I called it that day, and Brian and I was in the room, and I said a Good Friday Agreement in all of its parts. Because I knew that covered Strand 2, the All-Ireland, the cross-border element. I knew that covered the economic element. and knew that covered the unity provision. And I explained to him we have a democratic pathway back into the EU through the Good Friday Agreement. So it needs to be in all of its parts. In the translation, he did go in and he batted for us. And in the translation, it was in all of its dimensions. Right. But it was six of half a dozen of the other. And uh, I was also able to get access to the European Council Building. So that meeting, the the draft had come back, amended and changed and the language in it. In all of its dimensions. I stood around and waited in the council building there to monitor, it's never done until it's done, to make sure that that's what actually came out uh, the other end. And then there was a statement by the European Council to tell the people of Ireland if through the Good Friday Agreement process that the country was united or unified, that the entire territory of the island of Ireland would remain in the EU. I remember phoning Gerry Adams and he was out walking his dog, He probably wouldn't even remember, and explaining to him what had taken place. And I felt I left Brussels after those two inputs. I remember looking up at the sky and thinking of Martin and thinking that uh, how he had helped pave the way uh, for, for the changes that had taken place and that we had Europe's attention now. And the Irish government was not going to be able to present to Europe the Good Friday Agreement as an event that happened at the end of a conflict, but that Europe was now seeing it as a peace process and had other elements of that agreement that needed to be implemented. And we had got the attention in Europe that the people of Ireland needed and deserve.
0: And do you think there is a sense now that the Irish government are all behind the idea that there can't be a hard border and they seem to be very openly supportive of the North not ending up as collateral damage? And I'm not in any way saying that, you know, people are wrong in their assessments, whatever. But I remember listening to a Tony Connolly interview where he kind of highlighted Enda Kenny's good work in ensuring that the North would be automatically part of Europe, if in such a case for United Ireland. Is there a kind of a bit of revisionism going on with the Irish government's role, do you think, these days? Or do you care once the North is protected? There's no limit
1: to what you can achieve if you let others claim the credit, you know. And, uh, you know, for all the spin... About the fantastic job that they did, I just refer you to the first council meeting after Britain had voted to leave the EU, and and the Kenny was focused on Scotland, yeah, not on Ireland, and he would have stayed focused on Scotland, and he didn't want and uh, their establishment of that time, they didn't want Europe looking at or focusing on partition or the border, mm. or Ireland in those terms. As far as they were do, they their job was to present the situation as settled, as if it was sell- settled, it wasn't. The Good Friday Agreement was allowing us all to evolve policy and the constitutional position of the island of Ireland. For the first time, we had a peaceful and democratic way of reuniting the country.
0: I mean, on the end Kenny thing, then that just brings up another issue that I know you could probably talk about indefinitely, but what's your perspective on not the South generally, I suppose, but the Southern establishment and its ignoring of the North uh, traditionally. As a Northern nationalist, how how has that made you feel, for instance?
1: Well, I remember quite a significant moment, which I thought was for the first time in my lifetime that I had heard something from an Irish Taoiseach that if it had been true, it would have been good when Leo, when he took over as Taoiseach car, and there was big headlines in the Irish news that no Irish government would ever again leave us behind mm. and that mattered you know that mattered to the people of the north And in the withdrawal agreement that was being negotiated at the time there was a sentence in it or a line in it something to the effect that we would be able to exercise our EU rights where we resided. so that said to us that our Irish citizens and EU right holders, that we would still have our EU rights in the north where we resided. And then throughout the negotiation of the withdrawal agreement, that line was removed and the Irish government left us behind in that respect in, the, in relation mm-hmm. to where they could have stood up to the plate. you know, The Irish government at a, at a flick of a, a switch, literally a, a cross and a pen, could change the situation in terms of voting rights in the south of Ireland. Most other member states in the European Parliament afford their citizens who do not reside in the state. Yes. The right to vote in European Parliament elections, the Irish government does not. In terms of what the Irish government could do and what it does do, it's no wonder then the people see us as different. It's not the people mm. who are living in the 26 county, the state's fault, that they're being fed information like this from the establishment. So they're, they're going to actually feud in the way that is presented to them. People are too busy trying to struggle and get on with their lives and therefore fake news or wrong information or inaccurate information can shape somebody's thought process Look what happened in Brexit. God knows we only have to look at that. So for the people in the southern state, and um, in terms of, for the people in 26 counties, we just want to come home, you know. Uh, we are good, decent Irish people. The people of Derry is as Irish as the people Carry, but we have a reconciliation process that needs to go hand in foot with the reunification process. We've hurt each other. But the people of the South understand hurt and pain. You know what happened. Uh, the Black and Tans. Look what they did to to the people of Ireland, and and look what happened in Civil War. And and we know that as decent people, we can all sit around the table and help each other through difficult and challenging circumstances. To the people of the South, what happened in the southern state in the 26 county state is no different. Pogroms happened in the nineteen twenties, no difference to what happened as a child, at what I seen and witnessed growing up. Therefore, you would say to the people, look, you know, the diversity and the richness that we can all have as an island is something to be embraced. But it's going to take an Irish government, look, to help people to see it in all the opportunities that it will, and challenges mm. that it will present. But I take heart from the last exit poll uh, when people in the South voted. of them Mm. says that they supported Ireland being reunified. So for all what's being fed to people, Mm. you know, sometimes people are ahead. People are way ahead Mm. and realise what can happen and realise the opportunities that it would have for them. Could you imagine an Ireland reunited in the Vancouver University Map and Irish Reunification has said that a reunified Ireland would benefit to the tune of 25 billion? Like, there's your health service free at the point of delivery. People of Cork and Kerry and who are struggling And waiting list people are the same and dairy, you know, the kind of health systems that we both have don't work. But can you imagine what we could do together? So together we are, we would be better off than certainly what we are divided.
0: That's great. That's a very positive response. I'd be much harder on the South than you you're being. (laughs) you spent a good portion or you did spend a good portion of your young life in English prison. And I just wonder, touching again on what we've just said, some people in the South, obviously not all people, some people might describe you as a terrorist. And do you care to respond to any people that might be listening, what your take on that would be? Well,
1: I remember them describing the leaders of 1916 for the rising. I remember the same newspaper labeled it criminal madness. If people just would take a time to reflect and my life, is no different to anyone else's. But I was a child of the Battle of the Bogside. I grew up hearing and understanding about loyalists who bombed RTE. They had bombed an electricity station. They had bombed water installation. The RUC had shot Patrick Rooney, a nine year old child in his bed. Sammy Devaney from Derry was like my daddy standing at his front door and was battered. The RUC brought apprentice boys, tried to get them into the bog side. They came in with water cannons and, and all that happened before the ARA fired his first shot. So as a child growing up, I'm the second youngest and my older brother and sisters would have went on civil rights marches. They tried peaceful and democratic processes, weren't taller, hit by iron bars and you know, came staggering into Derry with their heads smashed. The state was not for turning. And anyone that defends their people against oppression, discrimination, inequality, brutality, well, I, I think how some people will see those defenders standing up for people in no circumstances and after the history that we had lived through and gone through uh, would probably describe me as something completely different and to say that that's how some people will label me I was a 16 year old child when I reflect back on it but it's no different to any other 16 year old and from a republican family when the Saracen rolled up outside its front door at five or six o'clock in the morning and came in and raided our home and arrested me and took me away for hours to fingerprint. That's happened. That was the regular occurrence for all 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds. I, I was in jail in, in Armagh. That's when I met Marie Farrell on Sunday at Mass. Um, I got out five years on the run, uh, mainly in, in Donegal, and then arrested at 23 in Britain, in, in Glasgow, and then taken to London. And I like, guess a 23-year-old held on remand in an all-male establishment, Brixton Prison, 600 men and two women. And when we would go out the yard or try and shout out the window, men and male wings that was facing into the windows and facing and we had to walk around the yard and walk past these would stand, expose themselves and call us all sorts of, you know, derogatory names. And that went on for 13 months as well as getting strip searched five and six times a day. And then you leave there and you go to Durham prison. We had hoped that maybe you were going into a female establishment and God loved them, like for many of the women there, only it was more serious, but it was like the monthly over the cuckoo's nest. And you were slopping out and uh, you had no toilets and cells and every winter the they would, sewage would overflow onto the area that was euphemistically called your dining area where you had your tables and chairs where you had your breakfast and whatever. And we fought there to try to get the conditions changed and the place was infested with cockroaches. So at night time you would just hear all the cockroaches just just crawling about. You had to actually do a brush and shovel, and lift them off the floor to put down a mat to do some exercise in, in the room that you went in. So like I was one of the first four prisoners repatriated six weeks before the IRA cessation in 1994. I went, was held in MacGabrie. It was at that stage, it was my fourth prison that I was in. And we were then put in the Republican wing about six months, nine months later. They wouldn't let us go in initially. So when you reflect back on the journey that people have, t- and I'm There's plenty of Martine Andersons out there that have had experiences, as I have had. Uh, I was released as a political prisoner. I wasn't released as a terrorist. I was released as a political prisoner under Mm -hmm. the conditions of the Good Friday Agreement as part of that process. Since I've come out, I was Shane Fein's All Learning Coordinator, Director of Unionist Engagement in 2007 when they had asked me to stand, which was about the fourth time They'd asked me to stand for elected office and I told them no on every occasion until Martin McGuinness came to me and says, right,
0: enough. Why did you say no? Do you mind me asking?
1: Because I I was a non-elected activist and I felt he was doing a lot of good work behind the scenes and I preferred to be behind the scenes. I remember there was one Republican leader as ex-prisoners. They had stopped us standing for five years. They wouldn't let you stand for office until you were out of prison five years. And he asked my husband and I, will we take a case? Because he thought that was discriminatory. And we says, yeah, we'll go and ask him to put it up to 10. <laughs> take yourself off. Go away. Leave us alone. But anyway, I stood. And um, so I was like MLA. I was put on, like, only getting in the electoral office. I hadn't a clue what I was going into. Didn't want to go in in the first instance. Hadn't come through council chambers, you know, so I had no electoral experience in terms of public office. And then Jerry Adams phones me and asks me, are you up for a challenge? And I thought, Jesus, what's coming next? <laughs> he <laughs> says, um, he said, I want you to be one of the four members on the policing board. And I says, Jerry, I'm going to have to get the windows in our house reinforced. And he says, is it that bad in the bog side? Because he knew I was on board, actually, for us going on the policing board. And I said, it's only to protect me against my family. <laughs> 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 so so I was one of the first four members on the policing board. And then I was reelected in 2011. And then I was Martin McGuinness's junior minister. And that was an absolute privilege. And it was that for a year. And then Barbara... De Bruyne, who was our MEP, for personal reasons, she left as MEP and one of the responsibilities I had as junior minister was Europe. So they had asked me to take it on and I thought I knew a thing or two about Europe. Oh my God, when I got there, did I realise, you know, how little I had known. And therefore, I I then, but I, I kept saying, how am I going to make this place relevant? And I do that to every role I'm taking on. And I'm going, how do I make Europe relevant to Bogside and how do I make the Bogside relevant to Brussels? Yeah, You know, and I was like bringing you to Europe and Europe to me. I had to make it relevant to Ireland. I was elected and stood for election in 2014 and topped the poll. And I stood again in 2019 and topped the poll again. So does all that define you as, mm. you know, in the way that you said some people might see me? I would beg to differ.
0: Yeah, like, and I'm not trying to engineer a Tommy Gorman moment here, like, but does it in any way hurt though? Or do you give a damn? Everything you just explained to me there contextualizes your role in a kind of a lifelong struggle. So then the label that someone who's living, for instance, maybe in a leafy suburb in Cork or Dublin or Galway might plant on you, does does it in any way hurt or do you not care?
1: I wouldn't say it hurts. No, it doesn't hurt. And I wouldn't say that I don't care either because, you know, there go the race of God go I. I would say to anyone that's sitting defining people and putting labels, sticking labels on anyone, walk a mile on the shoes. I wasn't born to have this life experience that I've had like I I' have no children I came through a, a terrible experience in Durham jail where I was taken out for for a DNC and I was literally dragged off a, a theater dragged up the floor with my I couldn't walk the blood still run out of me and a dress you no know, the gown lying open and men with guns all around me as they tried to put me in the back of a fan they, they take me back to the jail and did that Result in my biological clock. Did they do damage? I, I have always suspected they did. But would I have liked for, for my husband and I to be parents? And yeah, I would have liked that. I would have, I would love the kind of lifestyle that didn't have me faced with choices in life that I feel I had to take. Because the personality I have, the caring I have, the feelings I have, couldn't have allowed me to turn a blind eye and walk away.
0: Just as you were talking about Europe there, another thing struck me, which I hadn't planned to ask, but I might ask, like, give our listeners a sense of Brussels and Strasbourg, like you're, you're there initially, because Europe just seems to be kind of a mystery to most people. I mean, like, say your first couple of days, like, what, like, what's it like?
1: <laughs> what was it like? I hadn't a clue where I was. I had developed this saying, I always seem to sort of attach wee mottos to things that I do to, 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 to keep me a bit balanced or grounded or whatever, walk with purpose. So I had to let on out I knew where I was going, that everybody around me thought that I was going to a particular destination <laughs> when I was lost. I hadn't clue what floor I was on. I didn't know where my office was. I didn't know how to find it. And people would say to me, go to the third floor and everything happens on the third floor. But the third floor to me was like Spaghetti Junction. It's okay going to the third floor. You had to know to go left, right, up, down. Where was I going? <laughs> so I had to just walk around. I walked around with my we travel suitcase or whatever trying to find me So it was a maze and I'm going, How am I going to make this relevant to Ireland? I I got to be the shadow rapporteur, which you know is the lead MEP. You know, you have the lead MEP as the rapporteur and then you have a couple of shadows. So that grip becomes the lead grip on a particular right. policy legislative issue. And I became the shadow rapporteur for our grip on the tobacco product directive. And I went, right. And, you know, so I went and I met with groups all over the north who were trying to get people cessation tools to get them off cigarettes and the amount of money that was being spent in terms of for people who are seriously ill. And I am a former smoker myself. And so in terms of family, but I tried to, the one thing I failed to do was in in that legislation, I tried to get e-cigarettes clinically trialed. Because, wow. like, you clinically try the lead in your pencil. Right. But they don't, they, so we don't know what crap is in e cigarettes, right. so to speak. Now, some people that make them probably say would take offense to me calling it crap. But we don't know what's in them. And, and I tried to get those clinically tried, but the pictorial image uh, that I became sort of nearly upset, so that I wanted people to see when they're picking up a cigarette, you know, so we wanted those pictorial images to be loud and bold and in your face, uh, so to speak. And like tobacco is one of those products if come on the market now, it would be banned because 50% of those who use it die and uh, those are the facts. And the health service, you know, the money that is spent obviously having to care and rightly so for people that are taking a product that is legal, then, you know, it's um, so that's how I started to make it relevant to here, you know, even to grips and dairy that I was going around to talk to them about that. Because some people what happens in Europe, whatever the issue will be, like Europe is way downstream. Making the legislative decisions that are going to shape your life in a few years' time. And then what happens when the legislation comes to member states? People go, What? where did that come from Mm -hmm. so I always try to bring people downstream with me to go shape it now influence it now you know this is going to impact on your life now you know at some stage it's for some people it's too far away and then it's so there's always that sort of pull pull push factor that you have to be aware of but Brexit was uh, when Brexit came my absolute entire focus as the head of the Sinn Féin delegation was the damage it was going to do to the people of Ireland north and south to the entire island of Ireland and that we needed to make sure that Europe understood that.
0: And once you made them understand that, did you feel that the support was there for Ireland from Europe? Because that's certainly like an objective outsider looking at it. It feels like it was very powerful to see that Europe was kind of right behind us in our corner Was that your sense of actually being in the middle of it?
1: Yeah, no, they, they definitely, once they got it, they got it. Europe's very precise and legalistic. Once they got that there was an agreement that was voted on by the people of Ireland across the 32 counties of Ireland, an agreement that is lodged at the United Nations through all-party talks, and they realised, you know, that coming from a conflict out of conflict, and the provisions of those gre- that that agreement was crucially important to all of the different traditions in, that were involved in in making that happen. So they got that, mm. and they were absolutely committed to ensuring the protection of the Good Friday Agreement in all of its parts, however, and this is where Europe and this is where Sinn Féin's critical engagement with Europe is very important because we have a more sophisticated analysis, I would say, of the EU than most other political parties, if not all political parties in the North. Uh, south, east and west of the island, across the island, because Europe needs reform, serious reform. So even in Brexit, you can see that the focus, whatever about the border and that needed to be in terms of because there was going to be no harder border in Ireland, like, what, 310 miles of a border in Ireland with 300 border crossings, unless they were going to pull up the Berlin Wall, like they weren't going to close down the um, the penetration of their single market and, you know, and their internal market as such. So once they started to get all of that, the partition of Ireland is not only a problem now for the people of Ireland who want to see it ended, or between Ireland and Britain, it's Europe's problem too. Because the implications of Brexit for Ireland and for the EU, I think is writ large for people to see. And what we did around the special status for the North to remain in the EU, that was like the midwife of the backstop, as it was called. And then we got a full stop in the uh, in, in the, <laughs> the protocol. Because like the backstop that Theresa May had negotiated was only going to come into play unless and until it was necessary. Mm. It wasn't going to be immediate. Where the full stop was it's, it's happening yeah. uh, after the transition, you know, these checks are happening. And at one stage, you see the representatives from Fine Gael and the Irish government were looking at a Norway Type border, you know, so they were looking Norway Sweden type border where you'd have joint checks as if that was going to appease us any better. That the big customs would be run by the British and Irish government, in terms of, you know, so they were presenting these kind of solutions. And the common travel areas was what they were concerned about. I remember going into a particular meeting with a Fine Gael MEP, and I was meeting with the vice president of her group, the European People's Party. And I had the special status document with me and explaining the importance of it. And she lifted the document sort of off the table of me and points to it, you know, to the, um, the words in it. And she says to the vice president, but she's arguing that the North needs to stay in the custom union and single market. The North is part of what she called the UK, you know, that that can't happen. Because even when the special status document was voted on in Leinster House, Fine Gael didn't join, there's a joint motion between Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael did not come on board, they voted against it. So, and even in the Parliament, they were they had that fixed position too. Now, when Leo and Simon came along as two of the representatives, I think they could see things in a different way then and ended it. I watched, actually, this particular MEP and others when we got those three languages, those three amendments into the Parliament of protecting the Good Friday Agreement and all of its parts, no hardening of the border, the unique and special circumstances, the following resolutions that we got in the European Parliament, it was the first to again give expression to the North, staying in the custom union and the single market. And six months into it, and then I heard the language change from Fine Gael to come on board. And so we realised again that Europe, that they knew that the penny had dropped
0: and Europe was on board with us. Mm-hmm. And maybe that the writing was on the wall as well, that constitutional change was... Yeah. Kind of inevitable. Tell us, if you don't mind, about your new role. But what's what your what it entails?
1: Champagne's representative to Europe. I have just forty four countries to cover. <laughs> <laughs> Try to get uh, access to governments, diplomats, also business organisations, trade union organisations, think tanks, the diaspora, civic society, because. The words behind me in the proclamation, if we can borrow them, our gallant allies in Europe, you know, we need gallant allies in Europe now in the different fees to be the forces of Irish unity. Because the British government, the Good Friday Agreement, it's the one thing that is in there, the trigger for the unity referendum and um, the... This British Secretary of State, when it appears likely, we would say that test has been met. In five elections, unionists have lost their democratic majority. And that uh, the big conversation, the genie's out of the bottle, the constitutional change conversation is well underway. And test it then, then let's see what union we want to be a part of. People want back into the EU through the democratic process of Irish unity. So looking at all of that We need the role of the EU, we need forces for unity in Europe, and that's what I am attempting to do. So just like in the past, it's like a white sheet, a blank sheet. My motto for this one is let a thousand initiatives flourish and trying to get maybe different people on board with different conversations, but all wanting the outcome that we want which is a a better place for us all to live in, a better island uh, for us all, a shared Ireland, a united Ireland, that has got all the richness of all the diversity of the different traditions that are part of it. And just like, if you can recall, during different referendums in the South, where it was repealed, or we had the diaspora coming back to vote, um, I want the diaspora and those supporters and those people who understand the importance economically, you no know, businesses and others in Europe to be the forces for Irish reunification where they are currently, whether they're working or living in those member states. So big enough to challenge, daunting challenge in some respect but i'm up for it
0: two questions promise and that'll be it as an irish republican what can you do to make unionists feel welcome in your new vision of a new shared ireland that you describe
1: that vision that i described incorporates all of us all traditions people from all traditions and none it is an island in my vision of it and different people have different visions and it doesn't belong to me or it doesn't belong to Sinn Féin. It's going to be of an island that's going to be shaped by the people who live in it. An island that doesn't have a place for supremacists, for people with privileged positions. An island that will have us all having that experience of what equality feels like, what it looks like and having your children reared in a place that will not be discriminated regardless of their religious denomination or the colour of their skin. An island that is going to have also different cultures in it, including the Orange Order, including Orange marches, including Republican marches. Not in territory, we'll not have Republican marches in territory that's going to offend uh, the Unionist tradition and vice versa. It's something that I believe that uh, will be... A better place uh, as when I reflect back there on my own childhood, I would have liked Martina the Child to grow up in my vision of the island uh, that I want, as opposed to Martina who grew up in partitioned mm-hmm. Ireland and everything that came with it, all the faults that, uh, that happened as a consequence of that. So hopefully if we leave this world a better place for future generations, sure wouldn't if we all did that collectively together then unionists who are having their rights denied at the minute. Women from the unionist tradition here in the North are the same as women from the Republican nationalist tradition who are having our rights denied. LGBTQI plus people who live in the Protestant Union's loyalist tradition are having their rights denied, as are those from the nationalist Republican tradition. So, you know, it's a charter of rights, a bill of rights for all, all of us. And that's the protection that we can all guarantee each other.
0: Wonderful. Definitely last question. You were right there in the midst of it. And just in your opinion, was the Brexiteer movement that created this whole thing in their mindset, did they forget about the north of Ireland? Or were they fully aware that the north of Ireland would be collateral damage to get their Brexit done? Is it ignorance or arrogance in in your opinion?
1: I think for those from the Unionist tradition who were Brexiteers who were driving it, Realised that they would be damaged on, and for some of them, if not all of them, political unionism had hoped that the damage would result in a harder border on the island of Ireland. David Davis, the British minister, says that one thing that Britain hadn't banked on was Sinn Fein's influence in Europe, and they really did believe that the consequences of Brexit would result in a harder border in Ireland. The demographics. The five successive elections, the inbuilt majority that unionism has had to maintain this statelet, the privileged position that some within that tradition has held as a consequence um, of partition, they wanted back to the future. So it was absolutely the uh, strategic decision, I believe, that they had made, and had they had been really banking on this being the outcome, if it was going to if they were going to leave, that this was going to be a consequence of leave. As for British Brexiteers, they didn't give a damn. And they still don't. They neither cared about what unionists, Brexiteers wanted, no more than they cared about those of us who wanted to remain. It's you know, England wanted out. For the reasons that I would say, you know, the red bus and the project fear and all of that that was presented to people about the changed lifestyle that they would have as a consequence of that. And sure, look, we see all of that playing itself out now in empty shelves and the, the difficulties that it's having for people and uh, lorry drivers and all of that. So I do believe that you can differentiate um, unionist Brexiteers from British Brexiteers. And for British Brexiteers, sure the next time that Britain cares about Ireland will be its first
0: (laughs) (laughs) Martina Anderson an honour and a delight thank you so much for your time thank you hi guys you're very welcome back to me there now as I reflect on that interview I'm not going to say too much I think the interview speaks for itself I found her account of Brixton Prison very moving I'm sure you did too and I'll just say one thing, over the course of this process I've had an opportunity to speak to many many people in the North, more nationalists and republicans, not from the want of trying, I did reach out to many many loyalists, it didn't work out this time, I understand that I would probably have to build more trust, but what I would say is, republicans certainly don't have any monopoly on the pain or the trauma, and the pain and the trauma is the one thing in the North that unites absolutely everybody that's my experience of being up there it's just beneath the surface with everyone you can sense it it's tangible it's real and in some cases you feel that it's just looking for an opportunity to express itself Now, perhaps I've lost my reason in thinking that a loyalist, particularly a loyalist from a paramilitary background, might like to sit down and talk about their trauma with an uppity comedian from Cork. But, stranger things have happened. If I had an opportunity now to go back up and just talk to loyalists or maybe ex-British Army who served here, I would do that in a heartbeat. Because in the spirit of what Martina Anderson was saying, walk a mile in my shoes. And, as I say, my sense when I'm up there both communities you know you feel they've got stories to tell they've got context to give they've certainly got trauma to release without fear of being misunderstood or judged from people in say britain and the south of ireland that have traditionally not done enough to make people in the north feel heard uh, rant over offer open talk to take bet you wish you were here